Side Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. Reality, observed Arthur Van Stoker, as he bent over the murdered man, does not have any obligation to be interesting. He heard the soft scuff of silk slippers. The scene of the crime momentarily forgotten, he rose to his full imposing height and turned sharply. A smile of permanent self-satisfaction underlining his black piercing eyes. The heavy tweed cape snapped as he turned revealing for a moment the paired crossbows that swung from his belt. The woman who had interrupted him took an involuntary step back. But in this case, he announced, reality might just oblige. He noticed the woman was holding his business card. Edged in guilt, it proclaimed him the preeminent freelance investigator and neverborn hunter of the age. And not just in the city, or for that matter the world of Malifaux. He had no pretensions of false modesty in his advertising. Van Stoker was only ever called upon by the powerful and the wealthy, and his discretion and insight were as renowned as his bravery and tenacity in the hunt. You are surprised, Van Stoker said to the young woman, looking from her to the blood-stained corpse. But not at the dead man. This is nothing. You live in Malifaux, where death is no man's distant uncle but a dour and unloved neighbour. Specifically, he went on, taking in her elegant purple silks and the waxed black hair piled meticulously atop her pale but lively face. You live quite nearby, as you have had time to dress in this elaborate manner on such short notice, but the mud on your shoes indicates you did not arrive by carriage. You frequently work for the Guild, as you were able to find your way here, deep within Guild headquarters, without trouble or delay. Given your nationality, I would say you are also an occasional informer for Lucas McCabe, that he has almost certainly asked you to report back to him on my activities and my movements, and that the reason you are surprised is that Lucas McCabe had told you when he gave you my card that I was on the other side of the city, and that you expected to arrive before I did. There was a pause, which confirmed everything for Van Stoker. The young woman was very adroit at giving nothing away, save for a formal bow. Denise Chen, interpreter at your service. Lucas McCabe wants answers. And at the price you charge, he also wants a little insurance. And he thinks that I will find you fair and be less likely to object. Van Stoker shook his head. Transparent and banal. But as I mentioned, reality is often terminally dull. Now to business. Tell me why we are here. A dead man, 
she said. She walked around him and circled the small storeroom, avoiding the trail of blood. Someone brought him here, tied his hands and cut his throat. In the bowels of the guild, no less. What an affront to law and order, Van Stoker laughed. But notice what you say. You tell it as if it were a story. Who did what to whom? That is something every criminal wants and every policeman craves. A nice, neat story to wrap things up. Policemen like stories that end with them as the hero. Criminals like stories to hide the plain fact that their mark on the world is blood or greed. Stories can have enormous power over us, can make us see things that are not there, believe things that are not true. A sufficiently powerful story can change the world. So, ignore the story and deal only in absolutes. Those are my methods. They have not failed me yet. He is not guild, Chen said. He is tall and broad, yes, but as fat as a chef and has a wooden leg. His hands are tied with rope, not handcuffs, so not a prisoner either. Trite, but not untrue. I would say he is a sailor if it were not for the lack of sea around here. See the rope burns on the forearms and the salt blisters on the back of the neck. But can you see what it was that led Lucas McCabe to engage my services? She paused, glanced at him, and then back to the body. His chest. Something under his shirt? Van Stoker knelt, and handkerchief in hand, carefully opened the blood-soaked shirt for her to see. In the flesh, a symbol of the three kingdoms had been carved. Do you recognize it? She nodded, her face impassive. It is the long dragon. Exactly. A myth of the three kingdoms. A dragon who served the people of your land, and who turned into a river as a last act of beneficence. Another story that purports to shape the world. This symbol is why Lucas McCabe offered me your services, but it is not why he sought mine. Can you do better, my little insurance, hmm? She looked around the storeroom and shook her head. Van Stoker stood and cracked his knuckles noisily. He was not killed here. Not enough blood on the floor for that. No, the blood on the floor is a trail. He was killed somewhere else. Somewhere close by, and dragged here. But, Chen gestured uncertainly. If that is a trail, then... Exactly. The blood trail the corpse had left led not to the door, but right up to a brick wall. Van Stoker slammed his fist against it. On the other side of this is a busy corridor and not a trace of blood. Our murderer dragged this old rum here through a door that does not exist. The second murder took place two nights later. Van Stoker arrived at the Malifaux Museum of Natural History in the early hours of the morning. Two guild guardsmen were posted on the main entrance, and Denise Chen awaited him inside. Lucas McCabe stood off to one side, talking in a viperous drawl to a dusty, bespectacled man Van Stoker took for the curator. Lucas McCabe was the black sheep of a wealthy Earthside family, whose exploits in Malifaux were shrouded in rumours of death and scandal. That he had acquired a position of influence in the Guild was a surprise to many, but he had a growing power base, a loyal band of vicious idlers and wastrels, and an enemies list to match. McCabe glanced at Van Stoker, Dark eyes hooded like a hawk. Van Stoker took his time shedding his dripping wet cloak and wiping dry his equipment case. He overheard the curator talking about protection and money and murders that shouldn't be happening on his property. The little man was angering McCabe, and his protest petered out until he was apologizing to the guild man for having dragged him out in the rain. The curator knew nothing about whatever had happened here. Van Stoker was certain of it. They said you were good, McCabe said. His lean, angular face split by shadows. There was a sinister calm about the man, as if violence was always just a twitch of the eye away. No, replied Van Stoker. They said I am the best. Two murders, no suspects. The best don't look good enough, 
Feel free to hire the Argentinian. I hear she's looking for work. Or Le Savantois, if he is out of the asylum. McCabe smiled slowly, and Van Stoker could not imagine he ever smiled any other way. Dudge will show you the body. He whistled, and a large dog ran to his heels. He left, tucking his hat down low. The corpse lay in the Hall of Antiquities. Sprawled in a pool of light cast by a gas lamp, it was watched over by shadowy suits of ancient Three Kingdoms armor, lacquered gold and polished ebony glinting in the darkness, surrounded by display cases full of savage-looking weapons. The body was a man, small and wiry, with skin like cured leather and a tangled beard sodden with blood from the red smile in his throat. The same trail of blood, exclaimed Chen, pointing to the gory smears on the parquet floor that vanished at a plastered wall. Van Stoker knelt to inspect the body. It still had some warmth in it. A belt held a number of eight-bore shells and a maker's mark. Holland of Bond Street. This was no casual big game hunter. But the wall, Mr. Van Stoker, Chen said. It's completely solid. He waved a hand dismissively. It was impressive the first time. I'm interested in what is new about this one. He laid his case down, opened it, and removed tweezers, scalpel, and magnifying glass from the clutter within. The man's clothes were of good quality, but well-worn. There was red dust on his shoes and gaiters. It smelled of baking plains and a hammering sun. This man was far from home. A small leather pouch held delicate brass optics, protected from dust with an oiled hide. This man was a marksman, an artist. He severed the buttons on the man's waistcoat, prying the blood-soaked garment apart. The murderer had carved another character in the language of the Three Kingdoms. What do you make of that? Van Stoker asked. It is the Yellow Dragon. But what does it mean? It means an excess of clues, of theories, of misdirection. I have not yet decided. I will not fall prey to whatever story the murderer has crafted for himself. Whatever occult practice he believes justifies his crimes. Let that be his delusion. We will see with clearer eyes than that. He took another look at the man's ammunition belt. There was something stuffed into one of the leather loops. Conscious that in this dark hole anyone could be watching, he palmed what turned out to be a scrap of paper and secreted it in a pocket. Who found the body? The curator introduced a wizened old man who walked with a stick. He looked as sour as weak old milk, and the paper-thin skin of his face was as full of lines as a street map of the slums. This is Yan Lo, the curator said. He consults with us from time to time on relics and rare antiquities. We have both been here all night cataloguing a new shipment. Mr. Lowe had left to compare some bindings when he found this unfortunate man. Van Stoker asked him what time he found the body, and the old man thought for a long time before holding up three fingers and speaking a few words of Nipponese. The honored elder says he found... Chen started, but Van Stoker interrupted. Yes, three o'clock. The curator would also have offered to translate if he spoke Nipponese, but he did not. And since Mr. Lowe works with him... I'm going to assume he can speak English perfectly well. Is that so, Mr. Lowe? The old man straightened up and nodded once at Van Stoker. The light from the gas lamp flared momentarily, and all around the towering statues of the empty suits of armor loomed large. Van Stoker was just thinking that there was more to this Yan Lowe than met the eye, when over the old man's shoulder he saw something that gave him a chill. It could just have been a trick of the light here in the crowded museum hall full of strange artifacts. But for a moment, he had seen what looked like a woman's head floating in the shadows. His fingers touched the scrap of paper in his pocket. It was time to go. I may have some questions for you later, Mr. Lowe. Yan Lowe nodded again. Quite so. He gestured to the hall. Now I must tend to the ancestors. You mean the exhibits? Yan Lo smiled and hacked a short laugh. 
Quite so. Van Stoker and Chen left, as workers from the morgue arrived to collect the body, and the curator dodged fussed about them. Outside the museum, the rain was still falling steadily. The two stone lions flanking the entrance shone wetly under the gas street lamps. Van Stoker decided not to mention the scrap of paper for now. You know, he asked, clipping a fresh cigar and lighting it from an ember box. I must be more tired than I thought. I imagined I saw a woman back there in the antiquities hall. You didn't see anything, did you? Chen opened up her waxed umbrella and stepped into the downpour. She had put on raised wooden sandals to stop her silks from dragging in the puddles. No, Mr. Van Stoker. I didn't see anyone. For the first time since he had met her, Van Stoker was certain he had caught her in a lie. His favourite café was close to the river and kept market hours, which meant it was open day or night. A cup of treacly Arabian sat on the table before him, laced with laudanum and spices from Morocco. Van Stoker unfurled the scrap of paper. It had words printed on both sides and had clearly been torn from a larger page. None of the words were bisected, however, which was either an enormous coincidence, or the scrap of paper had been torn much more carefully than it appeared. The paper itself was not paper at all, but wafer-thin vellum, a painstakingly treated animal skin used only by the finest bookbinders. The words on it were worse than useless, however. A few sentences from some potboiler by Mademoiselle Verne the French scientific writer. He turned the scrap over and was surprised to see that the sentence he had just read continued on the other side. Curious, he muttered to himself, taking a sip of coffee. He flipped the piece back to check and nearly dropped his cup. The words had changed. Now they continued the sentence he had just read on the other side. He turned it over again and again, and every time he did, the words had changed. Sentence by sentence, turn by turn, the whole book unfolded before him. He finished his coffee and, on a memory of a myth heard long ago, tore the scrap in two. Different sentences resolved on each piece. One was the Verne. The other he didn't recognize. He rose and pocketed the pieces. Every piece of the library is the library he murmured. Could it be true? Two nights later, Van Stoker was dressed and ready for Denise Chen when she came. I expected you earlier, he said, putting his violin beside the breakfast dishes. I got here as quickly as I could, she replied. I came as soon as I heard. I assume they only just found the body? You mean you don't know? Chen looked puzzled. Then why did you expect me earlier? Simple. We have seen two dragons. I dare say today we will see the third. The legend tells of four dragons, so it is not hard to posit three and four from having seen one and two already. As for the time, he gestured to a sheaf of papers on the ottoman in his study. McMorning's reports put the one-legged chef's time of death at around three o'clock in the morning and the African hunter at around two o'clock. No one has yet come forward to claim them. I wager we will learn that this latest victim died at one o'clock in the morning. The number of days between the first two killings being the same as the number of days since the last killing, and this one was pure guesswork on my part. But it is clear that we are dealing with a structured ritual of some kind. Rituals are just another kind of narrative control over the world, with a form that can be observed, learned and predicted, he smiled. Or subverted if one has the means. You think there will be a fourth murder? Certainly. Everything points to it. Two nights hence at midnight. The stage is set, the challenge is clear. But remember my methods. Recognize the story the killer is seeking to wrap his actions in. He is the hero in his sordid tale of blood. Only by denying him the power of his narrative can we hope to get ahead of him and bring him to book. Bring him to book, she repeated. Why do you say that? What? 
He opened a case and threw a few tools and investigative implements into it. He clipped a small crossbow to his belt, checking it was loaded. A desk sergeant has a log book of all the criminals brought in during his shift. The areas of your ignorance are alarming. Come now, where are we bound? We need to catch a train. The third murder was at the rail yard on the outskirts of the city, and Van Stoker commandeered an engine with his guild warrant and papers to get him there. He and Chen arrived to find that the body had been moved, and the scene of the crime completely disrupted by rail workers, steam-powered carts, and cargo-hauling constructs. Nonetheless, the dried blood was still evident on the dusty concrete, as was the featureless concrete silo wall the trail came from. A few guardsmen were in evidence, but with nothing obvious to do and no commanding officer yet on the scene, they were ill-disciplined and chatting idly with some of the female workers. Van Stoker avoided them, preferring not to reveal his presence quite yet. He tasked Chen with finding the body, then retreated to a quiet corner. Chen returned shortly, having spoken to some of her countrymen. The body was on a pallet in a nearby warehouse, and Stoker found an unwatched and only lightly locked entrance, which quickly succumbed to his skill with a pair of steel picks. The warehouse was packed with pipes, girders, and miles of iron track, but a clear space in the middle held a single pallet with a grimy tarpaulin over it. Underneath lay the body of a grotesque-looking old man, a hatchet face twisted by a life of spite and miserly conduct. I've rarely seen an individual better suited in appearance to a charge of base villainy and evil disposition, commented Van Stoker. I suppose the world is better off without this one, but look. Throat cut, hands bound, and, as expected, the third dragon on his chest. The pearl dragon, if I'm not mistaken. What do they hope to achieve? Chen asked. What will happen when the fourth dragon is inscribed? I have my suspicions, Van Stoker replied. But hush, we have company. From the far end of the warehouse came the sound of many footsteps, some of them heavy and metallic against the bare concrete floor. A woman was at the head of them, short and athletic. Her bare arms were covered in tattoos, and she wore long, dark gloves with steel tips on the fingers. She had all the poise and arrogance of a gang leader, and her dark eyes flashed with a fierce temper kept close to the boil. She stopped when she saw Van Stoker. You, she spat, with no attempt to conceal her contempt. A scathing glance took in Chen, 
McCabe said you would come. But you sneak around my yard like a thief. The last thief we had left empty-handed. The men and women at her back laughed unpleasantly, and Van Stoker was fairly sure the thief had also left without any hands, if he had left at all. The muscle were all rail workers, many of them with rough-cast mechanical limbs to replace the ones they had lost in accidents. Steam hissed from numerous hydraulics and miniature boilers, shrouding the whole ensemble in a fine haze. That is Mei Feng, Chen whispered to Van Stoker. We're lucky. We seem to have caught her in a good mood. Van Stoker glanced at her in surprise, but it was clear Chen was not attempting an irony. He turned back to see Mei Feng approaching, shoulders rolling like a boxer on the prowl. She stopped a few paces from him. If I stabbed you, she asked, pointing with one slender, razor-tipped finger at his heart. Right here. Would you bleed? Denise Chen made to step forward, but Van Stoker put a hand on her arm. She was trembling. So much for the good mood. Something was going on here he did not understand. The question is not whether I would bleed, Miss May. The question is, are you fast enough to even reach me? The tip of Van Stoker's small crossbow poked out from his tweed cape. He raised it slowly, watching Mei Feng the whole time. He was an experienced fighter, which is why he expected to see some subtle change in her expression, some forewarning of what came next. He did not. With emotion so fast he had no time to react, Mei Feng brought her right leg sweeping up and hammering down, shattering the crossbow in his hand. He dropped the pieces with a gasp and flexed his fist, feeling the pain shooting up his arm. He had only brought one crossbow, leaving him just a knife in a forearm sheath. He drew it and took a step back. Mei Feng sneered, turned, and walked away. This is a waste of time. We will try my way. She led her rail workers out without further explanation. Chen looked aghast. We should go. Van Stoker snatched up his equipment case. I agree. They hurried out of the warehouse, back the way they had come. The noise and activity of the packed rail yard surrounded them in dust and confusion all the way back to the engine, which Van Stoker drove himself in silence, back into the city. Van Stoker set the wine glass beside Denise Chen and then handed her one of the scraps of paper. It still had a fragment of the Verne story on it. They were at his apartments. Chen had been gone for the whole day and had returned when night fell, her composure regained. Van Stoker's hand was sore, but uninjured, and he had been making sure of that fact with some practice on his violin. Chen, polite as ever, did not appear to mind his amateurish scratchings. What do you make of this? Chen took a sip of her wine while Van Stoker resumed playing, the fire burning in the grate a welcome relief from the dark and driving rain outside. She turned it over, frowned and Van Stoker could barely contain a laugh as she turned it over again and gasped. After a few moments of turning it over and over, she put it down. Well? Well, she said with a genuine smile, it is the dream of the Red Chamber. It is the book that taught me how to read. In English or Nipponese? He picked up the fragment and put it back in his pocket. She gave him a puzzled look. Surely you can tell the difference. Van Stoker resumed playing. So the scraps showed different tales to different people. Tales that had some connection with where they were from. Could this be from the library? There was only one way he knew to find out. At that moment a change in the sound of the rain caught his attention. 
His voice hardened as he spoke quickly. Miss Chen, for my next recital, I'm going to play something with an aggressive arpeggio. It would be best listened to from that chair by the bookcase. He pointed with his bow, making jabbing motions. Now, quickly, if you please, while the muse is on me. Perplexed, Chen changed seats. Just as she sat down, the study window burst inwards in a shower of glass and rain. As it did so, similar sounds came from the dining room and his bedroom. A black-clad figure rolled through the torn curtains, hit the floor and sprang to its feet, a sword flashing in the firelight. There was a flash and thick smoke billowed out. Van Stoker kicked the chair Chen had been sitting in, and it flew backwards at the intruder, who leapt over the writing desk and raced around the far side, sword poised. Van Stoker twisted a stud on the scroll of the violin. With a hefty clunk, a gleaming blade shot out at the other end. He lunged with it like a fencer, and the blade extended even further as he did so, taking his surprised assailant neatly in the throat. Barely had Van Stoker pulled the violin free when another black-suited figure appeared in the dining-room doorway. Van Stoker dropped behind the ottoman as tiny red-feathered darts whistled through the air above him. His violin was still making clockwork clunking noises, and a handle now extended from the side. He reached up onto the table, grabbed the bow and notched it onto the violin strings like an arrow. A lever caught the strings and pulled them back along the newly extended handle. Van Stoker stood, turned sideways to avoid another brace of poisoned darts, raised the violin, and fired. As the bow hurtled through the air, a barely audible click sounded. With a horrified gasp from Chen, the second intruder caught the bow inches from his masked face. Duck! Van Stoker yelled. As he and Chen dove for cover, the tip of the violin bow exploded. When Van Stoker got to his feet, the headless corpse of the assassin was barely visible through the thickening smoke. He pulled Chen to her feet. There was another, she gasped, in your bedroom. I don't think we need worry about him. I have many enemies, a comprehensive knowledge of traps, and I never sleep in a bed. He opened the bedroom door. The third intruder's feet had been severed by a giant toothed trap by the window and his remains were impaled on a series of spikes that emerged from the floor. Van Stoker sighed. The landlady is going to have kittens when she sees this. This is madness, Chen exclaimed, looking around her in a panic. I think we know what Miss May's way looks like now. Van Stoker took her arm. Come with me. We need to disappear. Talking to the lane was going to be risky. Van Stoker had been there once before, and had barely made it out alive. This time, with Chen in tow, it might go smoother, but you never could tell what mood you would catch the lane in. Dangerous as it was, first he had to find it. It actually moves around? Chen asked as Van Stoker led her deep into the small alleys and twisting passages of the slums. A glimmer of dawn sketched black rooftops against the sky. Yes and no. I think it might actually exist in a fixed place within the city, at least most of the time. If you spent enough time in the lane, you might even be able to work out roughly where it was. Mostly the ends of the lane can connect anywhere in the city, but that is not the problem. They continued walking for a few minutes, and Van Stoker had to marvel at Chen's patience, but eventually she gave in. What is the problem, then? Widdershin's Lane is alive. Do you know where you are? No. Wait. She turned around. No. Where are we? Alive? Good. I'm lost too. Which is not easy, I might add. If I start looking at the color of the dirt, the types of bricks, or the patterns of moss on the walls, I might work out where we are, and will never find the lane that way. We can only stumble upon it if... Van Stoker put a finger to his lips, and then pointed that finger at a cobblestone street that he was certain had not been there a moment ago. He took Chen's arm and led her quietly towards it, keeping his eyes on it. It has many mouthpieces. If it is the desiccated man, well, 
He won't tell me anything. But he won't kill us either. Well, probably not. If it is the bees or dog, and any of its mouths start to pant, run. If it is the automatic maiden, then... The crooked, cobbled alley stood before them. About half the way down, a yellow lantern burned over the picture window of a nameless shop. Van Stoker stepped onto the cobbles, taking Chen with him. He felt his heart race and realized he was sweating. It is the automatic maiden. Damn. He thought for a frantic moment. Do you have any paper? We're only going to get one shot at this, and you need to distract it while I talk to it. I know that doesn't make any sense, but you need to slow down its mechanism so it doesn't realize what I'm asking it, at least not straight away. Chen pulled her diary from her handbag, and Van Stoker nodded, his throat painfully dry. It would do no good to tell Chen the danger they were both in. Tear out a sheet and make it a crane, he hissed. I assume you know origami. Chen nodded as they walked towards the shop window. She ripped the page loose and started folding. When you finished one, put it down on the ground and start the next one immediately. Do not stop. For anything. Within the shop window, a wooden mannequin watched the lane. Carved from smoothly polished wood in a feminine form, only the upper body was visible. The lower body, if it existed at all, was hidden in an ornately lacquered box. The wooden limbs twitched. The maiden's face was made of porcelain parts, manipulated by clockwork mechanisms just visible between the pieces. Van Stoker stopped directly in front of it, and the automatic maiden rotated to face him. Out of the corner of his eye he saw Chen finish the first crane and set it down on the cobbles. The maiden's eyes click-clacked and settled on it. Van Stoker held up the fragments of vellum. I need to know if these are from the library of all things. The porcelain lips moved, although the eyes did not turn from the paper crane. They are the library of all things. The voice was sweet and dreamlike, with the clockwork whir of distant bees in a summer garden. He heard a sharp intake of breath from Chen, and did not need to look down to know that the intricately folded paper crane was unfolding all by itself. Do not stop, he whispered. I implore you. So it's true, it does exist, Van Stoker said to the maiden. Chen set another crane down. The first was almost entirely unfolded, and the second started unfolding the moment she released it. She gasped as if she had an electric shock and quickly tore another sheet from her diary. I need to reach the library. He stopped. Every part of the library was the library. That is what the maiden had meant. Given time, every book in the library would appear on these scraps. He had to ask his questions very carefully, or the maiden would tie him in knots. No, I need to enter the library. How do I do that? Chen had finished her third crane. It started unfolding before she had even set it down. The first two were perfectly flat rectangles of paper. Make something else, whispered Van Stoker. It's learning too fast. There is only one way in or out of the library of all things, the maiden said. Chen was racing now, a low moan escaping her lips as her fingers flew. She placed a frog on the cobbles just as the third crane opened itself out flat. The frog's head split and began to unfold. Where is it? It is never in the same place twice. Chen cried out. She had dropped her second frog and the half-formed sculpture had begun unfolding before it hit the ground. With trembling fingers she started on another. I can't do this, she whimpered. I can't remember how to make them. I think she's taking it from me. Where will the door be tonight? Van Stoker yelled. Where will it be tonight? In the basement of the Honeypot Casino. Van Stoker grabbed Chen. Run! They raced off down the smooth, cobbled lane. Behind them, Chen's final effort, 
a flower, drifted down, unfolding as it went. It was flat before it hit the ground. The maiden lifted her porcelain eyes to them, opened its porcelain mouth to scream, and they were out of Widdershin's lane. The Honeypot Casino was warm and welcoming. Piano music played bright and cheerful over the sounds of whoops and hollers from the dice pits and the catcalls and whistles aimed at the working girls. Thick blue smoke hung heavy in the air and formed glowing coronas around the hundreds of candles and gas lamps. And yet to Van Stoker, there was something different about this casino. Every casino hid undercurrents of desperation beneath the surface of innocent entertainment. But there was something urgent about the pursuit of pleasure at the honeypot. Something raw and ragged in the air that seemed to drive many of the clientele to greater heights of elation at a win, or greater depths of despondency at a loss. There was a mania of the soul here Van Stoker couldn't explain, and yet outwardly all seemed normal. It was the second night after the third killing. Chen had been keen to report back to McCabe about the attack at Van Stoker's apartment and the whereabouts of the library, but Van Stoker had refused. Instead, they had spent the day in hiding, and had now donned disguises. Van Stoker in the greys and dun of a travelling preacher, and Chen in a silver suit of black linen and a veil. They blended into the hustling crowd as Van Stoker took in the lie of the place and searched for the entrance for the basement. Welcome to the Honey Park Casino, sir and ma'am. The tall, rake-thin man in grey coattails, a starched shirt with a black silk scarf, and a fairground smile that would have impressed a circus clown greeted them with a tip of his hat. Jacob Lynch is the name, proprietor of this humble establishment, and it is always a pleasure, a genuine pleasure to see new faces especially. He took Chen's hand and planted a kiss on it. One so blessed with an abundance of fairness. Well, you could knock me down with a feather right about now, sir. You keep a close eye on that one or I might just steal her away my own good self. He laughed and did not seem to mind that neither Chen nor Van Stoker laughed with him. Behind him, a mountain of muscle stuffed into a skin-tight suit and waistcoat looked idly around for something to hit. But I do go on, sir and ma'am, whereas you good folks are rightly here for some entertainment and relaxation. So I will take my leave of you and wish you both a pleasant evening. And if there is anything you need, why you just holler, and Jacob Lynch will see you ride and ride quick. Jacob Lynch tipped his hat again flashed a light-bulb smile, and pushed off into the crowd. What an imbecile, Chen said under her breath, shaking her head so that her veil danced alluringly. What is your plan? Van Stoker guided her toward the far wall of the casino. The fourth dragon, the black dragon, will be invoked tonight. Four dragons, four murders. Two days between each one, and this one will occur at midnight one hour before the previous one. He checked his pocket watch, which is in twenty minutes. And what does the library have to do with this? Everything. He looked around, ducked under a crimson rope, and opened a nondescript side door. Quickly. They slipped through the door, down a dusty flight of steps, and into a long barrel-vaulted brick cellar. He doused a few gas lamps, and he and Chen slipped into the shadows between some wine barrels with a good view of the cellar. Van Stoker turned to Chen. All three murders so far have taken place in the library. That is how the killer or killers have been able to deposit the bodies around Malifaux. By the time the bodies are found, the door to the library of all things has moved on, and it is never in the same place twice. Then, if the fourth murder is about to take place, and it will happen in the library, we may only have moments from the opening of the door to try and prevent it. Then, if the fourth murder is about to take place, and it will happen in the library, 
we may only have moments from the opening of the door to try and prevent it. Van Stoker shook his head slowly. You forget my methods. These killings, the theatricality, the countdown to midnight, the predictable nature of them. They are an invitation to partake in the killer's story. We try and save this poor unfortunate fourth victim and we will play it right into the killer's hands. Possibly quite literally. Chen looked shocked as he had expected. You do not mean to even try and save him. The common criminal has one fatal weakness, and you, my dear, have one glorious attribute. The common criminal plans his crimes with the reactions of the upstanding, the moral, and the righteous firmly in his sights. I need only to look at you to see the bullseye he is aiming for, and know that I must expend my efforts in the opposite direction to thwart him. The heart of the matter lies in the library. It is there I intend to go. He put a finger to his lips. Although I strongly suspect the fourth victim will be dead before the door opens. It begins. The bricks of the far wall were moving, inducing an alarming sense of vertigo. The bricks fell directly away from Van Stoker, as if he were above them, and they above a black and bottomless well. When all the bricks in a roughly man-sized portion of wall had fallen into darkness, a handle appeared in mid-air, made of worn and tarnished brass. Wooden planks, black with age, appeared around it, as if growing from a crystalline suspension. In a few heartbeats, a weighty and solid door stood, at one with the bricks on either side. The door opened. A dimly lit room lay beyond. Two figures in dark robes appeared. They wore masks of white, with faces painted on them in Three Kingdoms style. Between them, they dragged the body of a man, his hands bound and his lifeblood trailing in his wake. They dropped him on the packed dirt floor of the cellar. Van Stoker could see that the fourth dragon character had already been cut into his chest. His throat was cut, and there was no possibility he was still alive. The two masked figures returned through the doorway, but it did not close behind them. Now, whispered Van Stoker. Darting across the floor of the cellar, he stopped for a moment to get a look at the fourth and final victim. The man wore a barber's smock with various implements of the trade hanging from a leather belt. His hair glistened with thick pomade. But even in death, his staring eyes had something of the demon about them. Another twisted character the world would not miss. Someone's coming, Chen hissed, tugging at Van Stoker's cape. Footsteps sounded from the stairwell, and Van Stoker hurried after her through the door. The minute he stepped over the threshold, he knew this was indeed the library. The air was cooler and drier than even the cellar had been, and the smell of books, that sweet and dusty tang, hung in the air like an enticing perfume. This place was old, he knew, much older than mankind in Malifaux. There was a power here, a very subtle but undeniable power. They were in a circular room with a domed ceiling and no windows. Packed bookshelves lined the walls, and numerous doors and stairways led off at irregular intervals around the circumference. Shuttered oil lamps cast pools of golden yellow. On a table, two books lay open. The sight of the books made Van Stoker's heart skip a beat, although why he could not say, and he had no time to look at them. The footsteps were still approaching. He and Chen pressed themselves against the walls of an unlit alcove and watched the door to the cellar. A single figure appeared, wearing the same robe and mask. It entered, and the door to the cellar closed behind it. It was the only way out of the library, and Van Stoker knew that if he opened that door, it would no longer lead to the cellar. 
four other masked and robed figures appeared in the other passageways and then to his horror chen put a pistol to his head over here she called then put some pressure on the pistol while her other hand relieved him of his crossbows let's get this over with there was nothing for it he was trapped he squared his shoulders and walked out chen had him stop in the middle of the floor while she walked calmly to the table the masked figures did not react if you wanted me dead van stoker said you had ample opportunity miss chen some of us thought that was the solution said a cold hard voice from the masked figure to his left that van stoker recognized as lucas mccabe and nearly ruined the whole thing the second shortest of the figures snorted but said nothing even that briefest of sounds was enough to tell him that she was mei feng van stoker turned to the figure at the door jacob lynch i assume the man gave an exaggerated bow the shortest of the figures was holding a staff mr lowe looks like my questions will have to wait which leaves the fifth figure removed its mask it was a nipponese woman dark-haired with jade green eyes that held not a trace of mercy mizaki katanaka mistress of the ten thunders trading house van stoker said as the other figures followed suit and removed their masks this is quite an assembly what the guild would not give to know you share a common purpose remember your methods chen said we that is the ten thunders were relying on them it had to end here and you had to return of your own free will and it is not denise chen my name is chiaki return your odd little games are making less and less sense i have never been here do you know where you are misaki asked the library of all things he replied it is mentioned in the oldest texts found in malifo a place of great arcane power and unknown origin it is said to contain all the myths and legends of this world of the nephilim the neverborn and those who came before them it also contains the myths and legends of mankind said misaki when humans came here they brought those with them not just in books but inside them as well and the library collects everything Mankind now has its own wing in the library of all things. And stories have power, in Malifaux of all places, and none more so than in the library. Stories can have enormous power over us, said Chiaki. And Van Stoker remembered saying those words to her six days before. Stories can make us see things that are not there, believe things that are not true. A sufficiently powerful story can change the world. The myths and legends within these walls shape the world outside. That is the true power of the library. But none of the myths and legends in the library are of the three kingdoms. We could wait, said Mizaki. It would happen given time. The library collects everything. But growled McCabe. We are not the waiting kind. So, said Van Stoker, you did what no human or neverborn has done before and found your way in. I must admit I am impressed, but what is my role in this? But he was starting to realize just what it might be. The kind of changes we wanted to make to the library were too radical, said Lynch. If we were going to get our own wing in here, something would have to go, said Mizaki. Some of your people's tales were going to have to be disposed of. 
Surely you've put it together by now. Van Stoker had, and the thought led only to one conclusion, one that he was struggling to avoid thinking of. The four victims, Misaki went on, a pirate with a wooden leg, a big game hunter from Africa, a master of pickpockets and child thieves from old London town, a bloodthirsty barber. Recognize any of them? You won't find their stories here anymore. Instead, she gestured to a bookshelf full of bamboo scroll tubes, the legend of the four dragons, and many others still to come. But something went wrong, didn't it? Van Stoker said. Something got out of the library that you didn't realize was gone. Misaki nodded picking up the two books on the table. And we could not complete the task until that something or someone came back. What are those books? Do you remember coming through the breach, Arthur Van Stoker? McCabe asked with a cruel laugh. I slept through it. What are those books? Do you remember what you were doing in Malifaux before I offered you this job? McCabe demanded. Freelance investigator and Neverborn hunter. What are those books? I think you know what they are. Masaki placed one back onto the table. Consulting detective. And the other. Hunter of Vampires. Two stories that, in their panic, created one single chance at survival. Mr. Van Stoker. You had to return of your own free will, Jackie said. You would never have come if you had not convinced yourself this was your idea. I am sorry, Arthur Van Stoker, but your time here is at an end. You fought well and bravely, but this is the time of the Ten Thunders. Leering, McCabe drew a vicious hunting knife and slid one finger across his throat. Misaki stayed his hand. Not this time. This one deserves a better fate. She nodded to Chiaki. Chiaki turned her back on Van Stoker and flipped one of the books closed. It jumped beneath her hand, and she heard a cry from behind her that was almost human. With a shudder, she flipped the second book closed. The cry died, and when the echo had faded, she turned, and there was no sign of Arthur Van Stoker. Put those two back on the shelf, said Misaki. They have earned their place. to go earthside. He is visiting Austria to research a new book. 
many happy travels, Mr. Stoker. All that there is left to say, yes, even to that clumsy assassin, I can still see you out there. Stay safe out there, because bad things happen.